You're listening to Behind the Scene at NTSB. My name is Leah Walton. And I'm Stephanie Shaw. Thank you for joining us as we talk with the people and learn more about the work being done here at NTSB. Welcome to episode 26 of Behind the Scene at NTSB. Today, Leah and I are talking with Rachel Gunnarutnam, a hazardous material accident investigator and investigator in charge in the NTSB Office of Railroad Pipeline and Hazardous Material Investigations, and Frank Zaykar, a senior metallurgist in the NTSB Office of Research and Engineering, about the August 2016 building explosion and fire in Silver Spring, Maryland. Welcome. Hi. Hi. Thanks for joining us, guys. Yes. Thank you for inviting us to the program. Yeah. Thank you. We're very excited to uh, learn more about this investigation today. Um, Before we get started into the investigation, we always ask our our guests to share a little bit about their background and how they got to the board. So, Rachel, I'd like to start with you to lead us off in sharing a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, So, my background involves, uh, I have a couple of degrees uh, that led me to here. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started in journalism, uh, which actually exposed me to a lot of environmental issues. And then that uh, motivated me to get a degree in a master's of environmental management and public health, a certificate in public health. And so that exposed me to a lot of the issues of chemicals and how they impact the health of people. And so I wanted to focus on that for my career. And so that actually opened the door to a job at the Chemical Safety Board, which was my first job out of grad school. Mm -hmm. And that agency investigates chemical accidents at fixed facilities. And they, we casually called it the little sister agency of the NTSB because they were modeled after the NTSB, not exactly, but similar to to them. And so I worked in that agency for about eight years. And I did both um, the recommendation side and the investigation side there. So it gave me good exposure to that world of uh, chemical laws in this country. Mm -hmm. And then there was an opening here at the Office of Rail Pipeline Hazmat, and I wanted to be exposed to the world of transportation and hazardous materials. Sure. And when was that that you came over to the board? March 2015. Okay. Yeah. Okay, great. So Actually, you just the passed the first time a... I met Rachel, she was at the Chemical Safety Board. Right. And after our meeting, she came and she's like, I'm going to be coming to work at NTSB soon. And we're like, oh, <laughs> well, this is interesting. <laughs> we came to meet you in your role here at the Chemical Safety Board. And just, I think, just a couple weeks, then you were uh, an investigator here. So Yeah, I whispered it to you because yeah. I wasn't sure if I even had the offer yet. <laughs> so. yeah. Awesome. Frank, share us a little bit about yourself with us. Yes, I have a... Uh... Bachelor of Science degree in Metallurgical Engineering and a Master of Science in Metallurgy. Uh, I earned my Master's degree through a work-study fellowship program with Davis & Geck, a division of American Cyanamid Company. As part of the program, I worked with an R&D group that designed, developed, and automated the process for manufacturing surgical sutures. After receiving my graduate degree, I continued my career for several years with Martin Marietta, uh, currently uh, Lockheed Martin. It's an aerospace company and defense contractor. I provided some production support for the Air Force uh, B-1B bomber program and the Navy's vertical launch system, a system used in Navy ships for launching missiles. My assignment included working on numerous failure analysis cases, both in-house and on-site. I learned uh, about the opening at NTSB Materials Laboratory through a government job fair. Uh, The job advertisement was for an engineer that has knowledge and understanding of aircraft structures and manufacturing methods and experience in laboratory failure analysis. Having all the necessary experience, I was asked to come in for an interview. My educational background and experience matched the requirements for the job. There was a match, and I started working for the NCSP. Uh, I am currently a senior metallurgist with the Materials Laboratory Division, and I've been working with this agency for about 30 years now, providing technical support for accident investigations in all modes of transportation, which include aviation, pipeline, railroad, hazardous material, highway, bridge, and marine accidents. I have traveled within the United States and internationally to support major accident investigations. Uh, let's talk about our materials lab. We have about 
six engineers right now and one technician and one supervisor. And we manage about 150 cases a year. Can you, uh, in your 30 years here, do you know approximately how many investigations you have launched on? Um, I imagine more than 30. <laughs> more than 30, yes. Um, uh, when I first started working with the safety board, uh, I was involved with the uh, Aviation Go team. And when we had accident investigations uh, that involved uh, airplane structures, mm -hmm. I would be launched to those uh, accident sites. Mm -hmm. uh, and I would be there for, for days assisting other investigators. Wow. Uh, and that's how I gained a little bit experience on how the safety board works. Awesome. I think in, um, in oh. our research and engineering office is, is a little unique to some of our other offices in that you all support um, every other modal office with their investigation. So you all, um, a little, unlike kind of Rachel, where you're specific to our rail pipeline hazardous material um, investigative office, the research and engineering team can support any uh, investigation. Yes, we provide technical support to all our accident investigators, and, and we use science and technology to help people solve their cases. Mm -hmm. uh, we have uh, the ability to uh, look at fractures. Our specialty is in fracture recognition. Mm -hmm. So if you were to launch to an accident site, often you would find that pieces would be laying around, multiple pieces. And it's our job to put them back together to see whether or not you have all the pieces. Mm -hmm. uh, that's important. Otherwise, uh, that missing piece, that missing link, uh, if it evades us, we'd never be able to solve our, our cases. So we look back at the uh, pieces. We try to reconstruct the pieces as if they were intact. Mm -hmm. And once we're comfortable, we have all the pieces, we can further go on. We, we provide technical support to our various investigators, and um, uh, in doing so, uh, we have to remember that uh, most of the materials that uh, airplanes and pipelines are made of, they're engineered alloys, meaning what, what does that mean? Meaning they're, they've been constructed to perform under a certain condition and under a certain strength level. Um, we often look to determine whether or not there was a weakness in the material, we have capability for testing materials, uh, tensile testing, uh, and other various methods to determine if those materials do meet that criteria. Um, the other things we, we provide support for is in fracture recognition. So um, the problem when we first go to the accident site is to determine where the fracture originated. Mm -hmm. If we could do that, then at least that's a starting point. Sure. And we're going to kind of get into that with the Silver Spring investigation. So um, before we get into the really deep dive on the details, I want uh, you guys to give us kind of an overview, high-level summary of what the, what the situation was and what caused the explosion. Sure. So this was a natural gas explosion in an apartment building. Uh, so and right before the accident occurred, which happened around midnight on August 10th, August 11th, it was overlapping mm -hmm. into that, but it happened a few minutes before midnight on August 10th. Uh, a resident had come, returned from home and he smelled gas and he also heard a sound coming from the basement of the building in the Flower Branch apartment complex mm -hmm. that he lived in, which was building 8701. And he went down to the basement to kind of investigate it and he heard the sound and he actually called a friend to figure out, you know, what is the sound? Do you hear it? Um, and the friend, I, 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 they must have exchanged some information, but he decided he was going to call 911 after he threw out the trash. Mm. As he was in the process of throwing out his trash, the building exploded, so he didn't get a chance to call 911. Mm -hmm. And so that led to a number of agencies arriving the next day, and we came. And so that's how the accident essentially started in our determination of launching to a, a pipeline explosion, um, kind of what, what plays into whether or not NTSB is going to, to launch a team there. And um, I know there's always a lot of questions about how pipeline is transportation and how it kind of falls under right. our, our work. Can you just explain a little bit about that and, and what kind of, I guess, 
is the deciding factor on whether or not it's something that we would investigate. Sure. Um, so natural gas flows through pipelines, which enters into buildings, and that's called the distribution side. And that is regulated up to a certain point into the building under the Pipeline Hazardous Material Administration, under DOT. Mm-hmm. So we have to figure out, uh, when we arrive on site, we need to figure out what section of that pipe falls under the, the FIMSA's jurisdiction. And that's when we feel, that that's where we investigate, begin investigating if it falls under FIMSA's jurisdiction. If okay. it doesn't, then it's the jurisdiction of the homeowner and that falls under the, the state and local laws. And we tend not to investigate those. Um, so we, we leave that to the state and local uh, uh, agencies. So I think I've heard it described before that we're kind of up to the side of the building and then anything that happens inside the building is kind of where where it's it stops for us or kind of it okay. depends on where so it's up to in this case it it was up to the regulator up to the meter sorry so up to the meter there's a pipe going up to the meter and then after the meter there's another pipe that goes into the home mm-hmm. so if that meter's inside it's one side of the meter if it happens before that then we would that's DOT but if it happens after the meter which is inside the home generally then yeah okay. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so um, the explosion happened, and it was determined that we would launch. So take us through what uh, what it was, because you were the investigator in charge on this investigation. So I didn't, yes, in the end I mm-hmm. was, but I didn't start off as the investigator in charge. Okay. It, it was one of our senior pipeline investigators who retired okay. um, mid-investigation. Got it. Um, so arrive. we arrive on scene, and what what do we do when we first arrive? And kind of explain also um, what what you see. Because um, I, I imagine that in the event of a uh, natural gas explosion, that there is really just a lot of, again, as, fra- as Frank said, fractured pieces of many different things. And I'm just so curious how you go about just even getting started, either of you. Sure. Um, so I arrived on scene with the investigator in charge. And so we saw an exploded building. Mm-hmm. And there were already local and state agencies that were on scene. And also at the request of the state fire marshal in Maryland, they requested the ETF, the Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, Explosives Agency, which Mm -hmm. is a federal agency that also investigates explosions, but they work mostly on criminal investigations. Um, So they came at the request of the state fire marshal. And so we worked together to determine the source of the explosion. So they were eliminating, ATF was trying to eliminate um, any other criminal activity that may have occurred on scene, because otherwise then if there was, we would leave. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they assisted us um, in determining that no criminal activity occurred and that the source of fuel was gas. So then our job was uh, then to look, how did the gas release into the room? And ATF also assisted us. We worked together to determine um, which building was, you know, where that exploded. So when we see, when we arrived on scene, it was just fragments of building and Mm -hmm. building debris everywhere. So Mm -hmm. it's very hard to determine where the source of the fuel was. So we, but once we determined kind of the location, which was in the basement, we Mm -hmm. could figure out. Uh, the potential sources of the release. Where would it have come from? You know, in the basement, we kind of, they helped us reconstruct the basement. What did that look like prior to the accident? And, you know, when we arrived, uh, when they reconstructed the gas meters in that room, mm-hmm. they looked, you know, we kind of did a mock uh, gas meter assembly structure, the piping that came in, um, and so we looked at what are sources, where are areas where the gas could have leaked. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there were two, three, couple of different areas that we p- proposed that you know would be the di- uh, areas where the leak could have occurred, which would have, in that particular basement, it would have been either the house pipe, uh, the uh, gas meter assembly. Uh, on the regulator side where the pressure regulator was, and then the water heater. Yeah. And, and I think one of the, the clues we, we received early on was we worked with the ATF and uh, Montgomery Fire and Rescue. Um, one of the information we learned early on was that the um, explosion started in the basement. And how do we find out? The ATF is, uh, is very keen, and they want to find out where the explosion started. Mm-hmm. 
they determined early on that the explosion started in the basement. How, how did they determine that? They looked at the, when there's an explosion, you basically have pressurized air that blows outward. Mm -hmm. And what they found was that the ceiling in the basement had been folded upwards. Okay. So at least that's a start. It tells sure. us it's starting in the basement. Mm -hmm. uh, and what they also found out was that the doors had blown outward. Okay. So that's two pieces of information right. that told us that the problem started in the basement. And there were other clues that kind of suggested that the area of concern was near the uh, regulators and meter. Mm -hmm. Right. And they identified early on with us present that there was a disconnected vent pipe there. Okay. So that was the possibility of where the leak could have occurred. So we often look for these things, but... Mm -hmm since they were very interested in that area and they determined that there was no explosive device in the basement, mm -hmm. we continued our accident investigation to look for clues why it started in the basement. Right. And you said that you did some reconstruction or kind of built a, a model of what it might have looked like before. Do you do that on scene or is that something that you did uh, later on in the um, fact finding gathering process? When did that happen? This happened on scene in the, okay. in the field. Okay. Yeah, the first thing we do is we document as many things as we can, either by a camera or video or mm -hmm. documenting by paperwork. Mm -hmm. We document everything before it gets moved. And then once we're satisfied, we have that documented, the position of all the items. The, the next item is actually try to determine what is out of place. Okay. And I think like Rachel said before, uh, what stood out in the investigation was not that there was something deformed or, or, or fractured, but that something was not connected. Mm -hmm. um, if you know gas lines, they're all supposed to be properly connected. Right. And one of the things we first discovered was that the vent line was not connected to the regulator. And that, that was out of place. Uh, and uh, the initial observation was that the uh, threads that connected the regulator and the vent pipe were not deformed, mm -hmm. they were not stripped. And we decided that's an area that we can concentrate on. Okay. Because if something's not connected, there's a potential for gas to be released. But I think what, what, what we all look for, first of all, what's required for an investigator to look at an accident site? Mm -hmm. It's the powers of observation, like Sherlock Holmes. First you <laughs> observe, you use your knowledge that you've learned either in school or through experience. Mm -hmm. Once you know how a pipeline works, you look for things that are out of place. Um, first, let's, let's talk about the pressure regulator. Okay, so what's a pressure regulator? Most people out there don't know. <laughs> I don't so, know what that is. So <laughs> I think like Rachel said, gas comes into the building supplied at a high pressure at 20 pounds per square inch. Mm -hmm. That's the pressure that's supplied. In the Silver Spring area. Is that a lot? No, no. it's it's not. Okay. But it's it's a high pressure. Sure. I think one one thing our, our listeners need to realize is uh, appliances in your home mm -hmm. operate at one pound per square inch. That's a small okay. amount. Okay. So now we need to reduce that pressure that's coming in to a safe level so that we could safely operate our gas appliances. So the job of the regulator is to reduce that pressure from 20 pounds per square inch to one pound per square inch. Now you could safely operate your gas appliances. Okay. Um, so the regulator is reducing the pressure that's coming in from the 20 pounds to less than one. Right. Okay. Right. And what a lot of listeners don't know or people don't know is that there's a third pipe that comes out of a regulator. <laughs> and that's the vent pipe. <laughs> okay. So, it, so the the... The regulator reduces the pressure, and it's supposed to protect your house from excess pressure. Mm -hmm. So what happens if there is excess pressure? Remember, during the year, um, the demand for gas changes. Sure. Same thing during the daytime. During the, during the morning hours, people tend to use their showers, hot water. Mm -hmm. There's more demand for gas. Uh, same thing during the winter season, there's more demand. Um, the regulator needs to protect protect your house from excess pressure if too much comes in. Mm -hmm. If that too much pressure building up, it's going to relieve that pressure through the vent pipe. Excess pressure is going to depart the pressure regulator 
through that vent pipe and it's going to go outside the building where it dissipates and becomes harmless. Okay. And that's what you all determined that that vent regulator part was not connected properly? Well, the regulator had to fail first. Okay. And then for a regulator to fail, it then has to vent the gas outside through the vent pipe. But in this case, the vent pipe was disconnected. It's not supposed to be. It's supposed to be connected so that it can all vent out the building. However, it was dis- disconnected, so it vented inside the building instead. Okay. okay. So uh, that so, was that was the that's yeah. what we first observed in the field, and then with the witness interview, mm-hmm. he kind of confirmed um, that this was a this gurgling hissing noise that he heard mm-hmm. is, um, and we investigated that further and interviewed, you know, gas technicians, uh, in this case, washing gas technicians and contractors. And they told us that when a regulator fails, it makes this hissing, gurgling noise. So that was, these were all factors that we were kind of putting together. And that is why we concentrated so much. And then Frank did his work. But I just want to add that we also considered, you know, other scenarios, uh, just so that we were thorough in our investigation. So we looked you know, when we were thinking, was there a house line issue? We looked at the service records of the apartment complex. We wanted to see if people were not getting their gas. Did they have lots of gas odor complaints? Mm. And there, there was one or two. There were maybe two odor complaints. Um, however, the the Flower Branch complex, the management company had fixed it, and so there were no odor complaints after that. So there was no real complaints that people weren't getting their gas inside their apartment. Okay. So that helped us eliminate that one scenario. Mm-hmm. And then when we looked at the water heater, you know, it was a relatively new water heater. It was installed in 2012. And leading up to the accident, there were no complaints that people weren't getting hot water up mm-hmm. to the point of the accident. So that that was another factor. But we still looked at the water heater pipe. And Frank can speak more on that. So uh, how long of a period of time do you think that the, that it wasn't connected properly? Like, was was this something that just happened in the day or so before the accident, or was this likely a problem that had been going on for a little while? One of the things we do in the laboratory is we look at physical evidence, and in, in this case, we were not able to determine how long it was disconnected. Mm. Um, let's let's go back and... and, uh, and explain how we determined that the vent pipe was not connected. Once we have a specific interest in a specific item, we bring it back to the laboratory for further examination. Um, there's there's um, one more thing our, our listeners don't know. We have two regulators, upper regulator and a lower regulator. They help each other out when there's a malfunction. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also found that the in the upper regulator, the vent pipe has been torn away from that regulator also. So now we had two disconnects, two, two bad connections. Um, we need to determine what caused those uh, separations. We brought the upper and regulator back to the materials laboratory, and we looked at the threads. Mm-hmm. Um, we determined by, by looking at the threads, let's first start with the lower regulator. That's the one that we determined was not connected. How do you know it's not connected? First of all, you look at the physical evidence. The threads were intact. Mm. They were not stripped. Okay. I guess if, if anybody deals with plumbing or any other connections in their basement, Nobody likes to hear that word, strip threads. Right, right. That, that means something had been torn away. Mm-hmm. So our job was to show that it was either connected or pulled apart by force as a result of the building that collapsed. Mm-hmm. So which one was it? We found lack of, we, we found lack of deformation. The threads were not stripped. Um, and um, that information told us that the uh, threads have not been forcefully pulled apart. Uh, Were you also able to detect whether or not they had ever been connected? I'm, uh, are these? I'm one. I'm just thinking like if these were new parts that had been replaced, that they looked like they had ever been connected at any point, or is that something that you would? We be we considered. At we we looked into how they would have been disconnected and. 
we looked at possibilities, but it was very hard to determine the timing on that. And mm-hmm. I think, Frank, you considered the timing when they could have been disconnected, but it was too hard to, d- sure. to identify the time. Well, we know that service personnel had serviced or visited the basement to look at the regulator. Mm-hmm. Right. But there are no records to indicate what their activity was inside the room oh. itself. So that's the thing. We know that the gas technicians have to disconnect the vent pipe to test when they're turning on a new gas service, they check the regulator and make sure that it's functioning properly. And part of that checking an inspection is to disconnect the vent pipe to make sure the vent pipe is clear of any debris and so forth. However, we don't know what was going on in those couple of service calls before the accident, if they had even done that. Because in their interviews, when we talked to them, they said they don't do it for an apartment complex because it requires them to shut down the gas for the whole building. And they only really do that inspection and test of the regulator when for a single family home, which it's easier to do. So we had contrary evidence. So it was, it was too hard to identify in this case. Sometimes what we try to do is we compare information. Uh, like I said, in, in this case, we had an upper regulator and a lower regulator. Mm-hmm. We determined because the, the threads in the bottom regulator showed no evidence of uh, stripping. Mm-hmm. Um, we sometimes compare that to damage in other components. Uh, for example, in the upper regulator, the vent pipe has been pulled out from the upper regulator. Okay. That that vent pipe or the threads showed severe deformation in the threads. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, in, in the upper regulator, yes, in the upper regulator, the threads showed severe deformation and the mating threads, the threads were stripped. Meaning that that had been uh, forcefully Forced, pulled apart in, exactly. in the explosion. So if you, okay. so if you could imagine uh, there's a building fire. Mm-hmm. Eventually, the building will collapse. It can no longer sustain or hold the contents in the building. There's a lot of objects at great weight falling on the regulator, mm-hmm. and that would have caused a forceful separation of the vent pipe from the upper regulator. Now, that's an excellent comparison for us to use. Mm-hmm. Now we know what a forceful separation looks like in a thread, mm-hmm. and we compare that with the lower regulator where the vent pipe had not been connected. Mm-hmm. In the unconnected pipe, there's no thread stripping, no deformation. Now we have two examples that we could compare. Sure. And that gave us further confidence that the uh, lower one had not been connected. That just confirmed it for us. Got it. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. In, the, in this investigation, you determined that the explosion was the failure of an indoor mercury service regulator being unconnected from the vent line. Frank, where does mercury <laughs> kind of factor in with this? And um, I know it's not something that you've been mentioning so far, but if you could just help us understand that a little bit. Yes. Um, pressure regulators, their function is to protect your house from excessive pressure. And there are different models out there. Mm-hmm. Most of them have a spring mechanism and a diaphragm that will relieve gas if there's excess pressure. It's a relief valve. Mm -hmm. But there are other regulators that use mercury as a means of releasing excess pressure. Um, The the service regulators in Silver Spring were made by the Reynolds Company, Mm -hmm. and they had uh, patented this mercury regulator back in the 20s. 1920s? So that's correct. Mm-hmm. Early, Versus early, 2020s, so, I guess. Yeah, and then, <laughs> that's right. So it's been used We're in... practicing future technology. Uh-huh. Yeah. So it's been used in, 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 in homes and, and buildings for years. Wow. And um, Up to the 60s and... Well, yeah, up, yeah, up to up the 60s and uh, 70s. And now we're shying away from mercury regulators because of the concern that we have for mercury. But... But let me say that uh, mercury regulators have been u- used for years safely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the only, and when you hear about mercury, the only bad side effect of mercury is if you're ever exposed to mercury. Sure. And how are you exposed to mercury when the regulator is either installed or serviced? Some of that mercury might leak out of the regulator. Mm-hmm. 
And any mercury that's laying around in the basement is, is, could cause respiratory problems. Mm -hmm. So that's where, where the issue comes in. It's not so much the operation of it, but the handling of it, which causes mercury to spill. Mm -hmm. And um, But let's get back to the topic. What is a mercury regulator? Mm -hmm. I can give you an analogy. So okay. what's, what's a mercury regulator? Where does that word mercury come from? Inside the regulator, there's a small portion that it's basically a small cup at the very bottom of the mercury regulator. Mm -hmm. It's filled with mercury. And uh, if there's excess pressure within the regulator, that pressure has to flow through the mercury in order to relieve the pressure. So uh, imagine this, you have a cup of water, put a straw inside that cup of water. If you blow through that straw, mm -hmm. you're causing pressure to go through the straw and through the water, and your, the excess pressure bubbles out through the water. Mm -hmm. Now, basically, if you replace the water with mercury, and instead of me blowing in the <laughs> straw, imagine there's excess gas in the regulator that's going through the straw. Okay. There, there's your mercury cup. Inside the regulator, excess pressure will go through the straw. It will go into the liquid mercury. Mm -hmm. And the excess pressure will bubble through the liquid mercury and out into the building. How do you, how does that, how do you regulate how much pressure, how do you determine whether or not the regulator is controlling the pressure by the amount of mercury in that cup? Mm. Remember, mercury is a liquid at room temperature. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a dense liquid, so you would need a sizable amount of pressure f for gas to escape, bubble through that mercury. Mm -hmm. So the uh, Reynolds company invented that patent that says if we put in so much mercury, that pressure will stay in the regulator as long as it doesn't overcome the pressure that's required to go through the liquid mercury. It's a dense liquid. Mm -hmm. So the level of mercury in the cup will decide that safety release valve. Okay. So if I could just add, the mercury regulators were installed in the 50s and 60s in older homes. Um, and since then, the EPA said, you know, we don't want mercury in homes. So asked the gas companies and recommended to the gas companies to replace those mercury regulators. And so, as Frank said, the newer uh, re pressure regulators are now with a spring valve mm -hmm. that operate similar um, to relieve the, the pressure in, if there's high-pressure gas coming in, but there's no concern about mercury leaking or anything like that. So the newer homes now have those kind of regulators. Okay. It's the older homes that ha may have a mercury service regulator if it hasn't been replaced already. I have a sidebar question. Um, you said that, you know, if, it's, if the mercury is out in the, in the open, that it's dangerous to, you know, for inhaling fumes or what... Um, in the event of the explosion, uh, did the mercury release? Was it was it out and um, causing potential harm to people who were investigating? Frank inspected that. Yeah. Yeah. What what we found was we had a, a fire, uh, a very hot fire. Um, we determined that a lot of the aluminum components within the regulator had melted. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it it tells us that it melted at a very high temperature. Sure. Um, the mercury within the regulator has a lower melting point than aluminum. Mm. Uh, so what happened during the fire is all that uh, mercury had evaporated. Okay. So we were not able to determine if the regulator was filled with proper amount of, li of mercury liquid mm. and whether or not uh, uh, there was sufficient mercury to protect the uh, regulator. And did you know prior to the um, prior to arriving on scene that they, this was a mercury um, mercury service regulator service regulator, or was that something that you discovered on scene? I think with the assistance of the gas company, we were able to determine okay. that it was a mercury service regulator. Okay, that's what we do. Um, we we work with the uh, agencies and people involved at the accident site. We try to get as much information as we can mm -hmm. about the logistics, the location. And we have experts in, in the field who visit the site, and uh, we have a collaborative effort. Investigators do help one another because everybody, everybody wants to know what happened. The gas company wants to know if their units were functioning properly, and 
We have engineers that constantly help us. Sure. I think that's a good opportunity to kind of reference the party system. So, Rachel, um, if you don't mind explaining a little bit of kind of who assisted with with the investigation, because we don't do them alone and recognizing that, you know, kind of like determining whether or not there, what type of regulator was in there, certainly getting that directly from the um, the gas company would, would save you all a lot of time, I imagine, than trying to look into that alone. Right. Yeah. So uh, when you begin any NTSB investigation, you have a, a number of groups that focus on different parts of the investigation. In this case, we were looking on the operations, the gas operations side, and the emergency response was one group. And then there was a third, which was the regulatory group. That was my group. And I worked closely with the operations side. And so as part of the groups, you have what's called party members. And in, in there, the organizations that are directly impacted by this a- accident. In this case, it was Washington Gas. It was uh, Kane Management, which was the Flower Branch Apartment Complex and the Montgomery County Fire Marshal, um, who was also investigating this accident because it was within their jurisdiction. And I believe also for the emergency response group, they also had the police Depart- Montgomery County Police Department also as part of it. And I believe those were all the groups. And so they um, assisted us alongside the investigation and helped us identify areas that needed to be investigated such as the mercury regulator, the operation side of, you know, how pipes are maintained and so forth. And we look at the service history of those regulators and so forth. And then they're also part of Frank's group, which is the uh, actual lab examination of the regulators um, and looking at how they could have possibly failed. You mentioned earlier that the, um, that there were records of... Um, members from the gas company coming to the the apartment complex to do some kind of service or something like that. But you mentioned that what they had done there wasn't doc- necessarily documented what they were doing. Is that kind of a normal thing or, or would you have expected that they would be documenting whatever they were doing whenever they went into that, that room? I don't know if it's a normal. I, I'd have to look at other gas companies and how they do it. That sure. would I'd have to compare. Uh, we know that they have a form that they fill out. However, it didn't reflect the actual activity. So they on their form it said that they checked the regulator and inspected it and whether it was functioning or not. And it was just kind of a checklist kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think one thing to remember is. Uh, most companies have checklists, sure. but we just can't be too specific and write every detail. Sure. Mm-hmm. It, it's assumed that once uh, a component is installed, sometime during the lifetime it gets, uh, it gets serviced, and people have to follow certain procedures to right. disconnect uh, some units and then put them back together. Uh, in accordance with their procedures. Exactly. So we looked at their procedures afterwards. And, and it just yeah. you just can't document everything sure. to a point where, mm-hmm. you know, did you attach this before this sure. and the sequence of it. Mm-hmm. We assume that the personnel are trained. And that, that's, that's where some of the um, recommendations go. We, we say sometimes if there's not enough training, we need to remind people that training is a way to get people to do things correctly. Mm-hmm. Right. So we interviewed them to see if they were following their procedures. And so that was the additional piece of evidence that, you know, when we looked at, okay, here are the service records, here are your procedures on what you have to do. And then when we asked the technicians, did you actually do this? We found that they weren't following procedures. So then that led to our recommendations. Okay. I want to back up um, talking about the mercury service regulator. For my own information, and probably some other people who are listening, how do I determine if I have a mercury service regulator or if I have one of the newer kinds? Is that something that, or is that something that's like, it might be outside my home, it could be inside my home? Where would I even look to see if I have something like this? And is it also, is it important as for me as a homeowner to know that? Sure. I mean, 
Mercury regulators, as I mentioned before, were installed in the 50s and 60s. So mm-hmm. if your home was built then and it was getting gas, mm-hmm. it would be in possi- most likely where your pipes were coming in. They'd be in the basement. Okay. Um, and so you'd have to first know how old your house is. <laughs> right. It yeah, is. It's, well, it's, yeah. it's possible to, for a homeowner yeah. to identify whether or not they have a, a right. mercury regulator. First of all, the, uh, the Reynolds regulator is mm-hmm. a disc shaped unit mm-hmm. and uh it it typically will have a small cylindrical cup at the bottom maybe extending one inch below the uh, housing mm-hmm. and maybe about a half inch diameter and typically it will be installed so that the disc portion the flat portion is parallel to the floor okay and, and then the reason is that uh when once it gets installed you don't want mercury to tip over you want to stay in the cup mm-hmm so, so it's configured horizontally, okay, compared to the. That's correct, yeah. And um, if you look at any other regulator, if it's disc shaped and it has the diaphragm, mm-hmm. uh, many times the disc portion will be in the vertical position or up and down direction, such mm-hmm. that the the diameter or or the disc will be perpendicular to the floor. Mm-hmm. So that's one, and it won't have the cup. Okay. At the very bottom. Okay. I'm going to go home tonight and look for mine. And of course, uh, yeah, the... It would be next to your gas meter. Okay. It's right up next to your gas meter, so... So it's it's upstream of the gas meter. Upstream of the gas meter. So... But, yeah, because it's reducing the pressure that's going into your house, so it has to be right next to your mm-hmm. to your meter. Okay. So look mm-hmm. for it there. <laughs> I will. And you can call your gas company and talk to them about it and be like, do you know what kind of regulator I have? Huh. And, I mean, they should have identified if they don't know then they can come out and you can talk to them about relocating it outside because they are the ones who would be best to do it okay however it would be at a cost most likely to the homeowner if you want to take those steps Uh, or you can ask the gas company are you planning to move it out because gas companies are already relocating their regulators outdoors so you can ask those kind of questions okay yeah and the regulators could be indoors or outdoors um you could follow the gas line mm-hmm. and uh, if if you're not sure you could always talk to the gas company so if you leah was talking about her house and if you are someone that you that determines that they have a, a mercury regulator should you be concerned is that something that you want replaced right away or is there really no kind of no there's s- no pressing concern okay. i mean we don't have a a catastrophic history of failures with with these type of regulators okay. it's just that because they're such old technology, I mean, they did, you know, there is wear and tear. And, you, you know, they do, uh, obviously from Silver Spring, we noticed that they have failure modes. Mm-hmm. Sure. And the gas company identified those, those failure modes and they have a history, you know, they have records of actual failures. Mm-hmm. So there's no press, but it what didn't happen over that since, you know, 1950s and 60s. We don't have this, you know, ca- you know frequent failures sure. okay it just so happened that in this case they yes. had mercury regulators and right. that happened to be what failed yeah it's the the gas company that determines when the regulator needs to be replaced right if it uh malfunctions they they have test procedures which will determine whether or not their regulator needs to be replaced uh just remember components don't last forever sure there's internal breakage uh, remember the the regulator I, I said earlier um, it needs to regulate the pressure that goes into your house. Mm-hmm. So if there's pressure spikes in the system, it'll protect your house from the overpressure. Uh, but when when does uh, the regulator also malfunction? Well, when internal comp- components go bad, you know wear and tear. Mm-hmm. Uh, if if there's a tear in the flexible diaphragm within that unit, you can get constant venting. If there's a, a in the valve mechanism, if it doesn't open or close properly, that could cause venting. Mm-hmm. And the company, if you call the gas company and you say there's a hissing sound or it doesn't sound like it's operating, they'll come in and check it out for you. Sure. And they will decide if there's a malfunction, they will replace the unit. Sure. In the um, I know in the report I read that there were a couple of um, incidents, I guess, where people... At, who lived at the complex had reported that they had smelled gas. And then when I, I believe it was the fire rescue service came out, they weren't able to detect um, that there was, I guess, any kind of a gas leak. Can you just tell us a little bit about what, 
what they would have been using to to detect the presence, I guess, of, of gas to know if there was some kind of a leak. Um, and maybe also for for anyone that that kind of finds themselves in a in a position almost like the gentleman who had who was taking out his trash and mm-hmm. and learned of this kind of what's that immediate step you should take? Sure. Um, at Silver Spring, two weeks before the accident occurred, there was a gas odor call to the fire department uh, of a smell of gas in the area, and so they came and responded to that building, eight seven zero one, and the fire department. Uh, what their typical protocol for responding to a gas incident is to approach the building with a gas detection tool meter. And so they, uh, they went uh, starting from the bottom up and started, you know, trying to detect whether gas was in the building and there they were detecting no readings. So when they went down into the building, into the basement of 8701, they couldn't actually access the basement. So they wedged open the door and tried to put their meter inside. However, the way that gas flows, it, it, depending on how, where the, the gas detection tool was a, was in the flow of gas, it's, it's hard to detect because their tools, their meters are actually trying to detect an explosive atmosphere, mm. not necessarily a leak. It, we're not sure how sensitive their tools were. So okay. the gas companies, we... From that incident, you know, they detected no, they had, the fire department had no uh, gas readings on that date. So they didn't, because they had no gas readings, they didn't call the gas company because they felt there was no gas leak. Mm-hmm. Were, but uh, we felt that had the gas company been called two weeks prior, they would have done further investigation and possibly did, seen the disconnected vent pipe because they do have the procedures and tools to kind of go further. Mm-hmm. Um, the, ga- the fire departments, you know, they do what they can. They, you sure. know, they did a very good job here, but, the, and also they didn't have access to that room, which the fire branch complex was supposed to have given them a key. They're mm-hmm. always supposed to have a key, but unfortunately it didn't get replaced in time because they had changed the locks. Okay. For rep- for reporting, you know, the, the residents of that complex or somebody at home, um, should your first call be your, um, gas company, or should it be nine one one? What is what would have kind of been the the right response for someone who thinks that they detect a, the smell of gas or something like that right. in their home? So the typical response is, standard is to first evacuate, don't stay in the building, and then call nine one one, and then call your gas company. That way, all relevant people need responders need to respond to detect it, and get, fire departments need to know just so to make everybody safe first. And the gas company needs to know so they can turn off the gas and detect a leak and so forth. So mm-hmm. that's kind of the typical protocol of evacuate, call 911, and then call your gas company. It's also important for the uh, listeners to understand that if they smell gas, they need to take it seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, if anybody has taken any chemistry in school, uh, you know what the uh, smell of rotten egg is or what sulfur smells mm-hmm. like. Mm-hmm. Um, the gas company puts artificial odorants in gas so that if there's a leak, you could smell it. And if you do smell it, it's a warning sign. So anything that smells like sulfur or rotten eggs, it's... it's take it as indicate. a warning yeah, to, it's a, to kind take of some up action. To your warning. But that brings us to another point is um, if your senses, some people may not have good keen senses, mm. we, we come across the one of the recommendations we made. Uh, Rachel could elaborate on that on use of uh, methane detectors or gas detectors to further help us with detecting gas leaks. And that's where that technology is going right now. We, we count on people to report gas leaks, but if it's in a location in a building where you don't have people and, and that gas goes leaking for hours or how much time, we, we're looking at technology that can help us detect uh, gas leaks and and that's where we made right. a recommendation about so odor is a, oh, so gas is odorized and it has to meet certain regulatory requirements mm-hmm. for the purpose of warning people that mm-hmm. there's a gas leak because gas obviously can explode and you know it can ignite and explode so however when you're in a big apartment complex it's hard for everybody to smell it mm-hmm. and sometimes especially at night when you're sleeping you may not smell it right away so odorization has limitations to it. Sure. So just as an added precaution, 
we recommended that methane detection actually be required in, you know, gas-fueled, you know, our, our buildings that have a gas gas service in it, such as, and single-family homes are included in that as well. Okay. Are they, are those easily acquired? Do they sell them at Home Depot? Where can I find a methane right. detector? <laughs> <laughs> so they are commercially available at your local uh, hardware store, like, okay. you know, and they, but however, the gas, because it's recent, more recent technology, mm-hmm. um, they there has been some problems, challenges with the technology because it interferes with other household chemicals in your home, mm-hmm. or they can give false alarms. Um, however, it's it's better than nothing. Um, so the gas industry is testing the technology to kind of identify what's what's best out there, uh, and to see if the you know the gas companies can be involved in the installation of those alarms. And so that's all in the fine-tuning testing phase right now. Yeah, right now the industry is looking for a reliable gas detector, and that's where cost comes in. Mm-hmm. We can develop a system that will detect a gas leak, but uh, at an expense. We're looking for a component that could be used in the home that's cheap. Uh, the problem with developing technology with, with low-cost parts is that there are some false indicators or false alarms and that's what we're trying to improve right now technology such that uh, uh, gas detection is flawless and we're trying to head in that direction because if people if false alarms are happening people will then start to ignore the alarm and we don't want that so that's why they're they need to fine-tune it and right now they're testing some of this technology up in new york uh, and the gas company is involved in what's called they, they put in the alarms and they have what's called a smart meter. So the alarm will then communicate to a smart meter, which then communicates to the gas company's dispatch center, the emergency center. Okay. And they have, they're finding so far they've had no false alarms and it's been indicating a true gas leak. Mm-hmm. So they're in that process of kind of fine-tuning that technology. And validating it. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, we are getting towards the end of our podcast, so I just wanted to... Um, See if you all have any final thoughts before we close out for the for the episode. Only that we'll continue to provide technical support to our investigators. We'll use science and technology to provide that assistance for those investigators. And hopefully we could solve more cases in the future with, with that knowledge. Great. And our hope is that these type of gas incidents will not happen in the future. And I hope that our investigation helps with that. Well, thank you again, Frank and Rachel, for joining us today on Behind the Scene with NTSB. Thank you to James, our producer, who makes us all sound fantastic. And thank you to our listeners for joining us again. We will talk to you next time. Thank you for joining us on Behind the Scene at NTSB. Subscribe to and like us on your favorite podcast platform. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And don't forget, you can always find us at ntsb.gov. Thank you and bye.